Good morning. Um, welcome. If you're here for the first time, let me just add my voice and say uh, we're glad you're here. We're, we're in this series that, um, that we have been reading through Scripture. Uh, at the end of January, I gave a challenge. Challenge people uh, to read all the way through the Bible in 90 days, if you could. And a whole bunch of people have taken up the, that challenge. That's been a really, really cool thing. Um, but the, the, there are also people that are maybe just reading through the New Testament right now, uh, just reading Psalms and Proverbs, just reading the Gospels. And that's cool, too, because the challenge really is to jump in and to begin to read Scripture and to let it get into your heart, into your life, into your world in a way that maybe it never has before. Um, last week when Chris was speaking, I, I uh, was looking up at the slide, at the title slide that was there, and, and, and I thought, you know what, if people miss that first week, they might be thinking, what is the deal with the honey that's up there? Uh, and, I, and I thought it might be good to just kind of go back and touch base about that. In the, in the 12th century, um, in the Jewish culture, the rabbis began to do something to, to, uh, to train young children to love God's word. What, when they were three, they'd, they'd be brought to the rabbi, and the rabbi would begin to teach them the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Do it with a slate, and he would read from read to them from Ezekiel, and ultimately he would he would drip the honey on the slate, and the child would lick that honey off, and and the the rabbi would say, "Taste and see that the Lord is good. Your words are like are, are sweeter than honey from the honeycomb." That that whole concept was designed to teach children from the very young age how important God's word is. Um, I don't have honey to pass out today. Maybe it would be good to have packets of honey that I could just kind of toss out there. But, but here's the deal. I want you to, uh, maybe you haven't been reading at all. Let me encourage you today to just kind of jump in and start, uh, to start to read Scripture because it changes us. It changes the way that we think, the way that we act, um, the way that we interact in the world. If you're doing the 90-day challenge this next week, is going to take you. It's it's going to take you through Daniel, the book of Daniel, and then through what we call the minor prophets, twelve smaller books of prophecy that are there in the in the Old Testament. Last week, Chris uh, Chris talked from Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and a little bit of Daniel. Um, and let me just say this because I'm not going to talk really about Daniel uh, this week, except for the next couple of minutes. Um, if you connect to the song that the band just sang, Courageous, this whole idea of, of having the courage to take a stand and do what's right, let me encourage you to read the book of Daniel because in the book of Daniel, there is um, you, what you'll encounter are individuals that stood up in a, in a crazy culture, in a culture that was opposed to God. They stood up for their relationship with God and, and um, did that courageously in spite of whatever odds were going to be there. So the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, um, that's in the book of Daniel. The story of Daniel in the lion's den, if you've ever heard that reference. It's the book of Daniel. Man, jump in and read that good, good stuff. After Daniel comes the minor, what we call the minor prophets. There are 12... Um, uh, prophets that uh, the books are smaller. They're not like minor in importance. They're actually just minor because they're shorter books. And so that starts with Hosea. Uh, and let me see if I can do this back from childhood. Hosea, Jonah, Joel, thank you. Um, you know what? That's why we have notes because our brains get old. Hosea, jo Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, 12 of them. In the, uh, um, in the Hebrew Bible, they were part of the prophets, and actually all 12 of those books were combined into one scroll. 
that it was, it was combined into one book because they shared similar themes. Twelve prophets that uh, cover uh, about 300 years um, of interaction with the nation of Israel before they went into captivity, um, uh, as they were in captivity, and then even afterwards with the last one with Malachi as they came out of captivity and, and, uh, and set the stage really for ultimately for the Messiah to come. Um, the, uh, those, those 12 books, in the, uh, if you were to talk to, to uh, somebody who's Jewish, they would, they would talk about the 12. That's kind of the title for them, the 12. Um, and, and they talk about them, they combine them into one scroll because they all have kind of similar themes that weave in and out. And, um, there's not just one theme that goes there. There's a, a whole bunch of themes that are there. Different scholars would say different things. Uh, as I've been reading, I think these are the five things that really have stuck out to me. Um, the, one of the themes that's there that you'll read in the Minor Prophets is this um, reality that, that the nation of Israel has turned their back on God and they've rejected God's teaching. They've, they've uh, rejected God as God and it, instead they've gone to idols. They've begun to worship idols and to seek idol, idols. You'll hear the prophets say over and over and over again, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is the choice that you've made. Um, uh, one of the other themes that's there is that, the, that you'll see over and over again is Israel's um, lack of concern for justice within the Jewish community and the greater community beyond that. Over and over again, um, the prophets will say, you know what, um, you, you, you don't care about the oppressed. You, you haven't taken up the cause of the, of the widows, the, the orphans, the fatherless. Um, you've, you're, you're not concerned at all about people who can't speak up for themselves. Third, the third thing that I think that's there that you'll see is that punishment is going to happen. That the nation is going to be taken into captivity because they've rejected God. You'll see that over and over again. God's going to punish the Israelites. And not only the fourth thing is, not only is God going to punish the Israelites for rejecting him, God's going to punish the nations that take Israel into captivity because of, of what they've done to God's people. That God is just and that, there, that there's going to be consequences that come because of the way that they treat uh, the Jewish nation. And the fifth thing, and this is the, really the most important, through the minor prophets, you'll see this thread of hope that comes through there, that, that uh, ultimately there's going to be a Messiah that comes, a Savior that changes everything, that turns the world upside down in an incredible way. That's the minor prophets in, in, a, in a big picture, kind of an overview. The question that I want to ask you this morning, uh, or what I'd like to do this morning, is to really look at two passages from two different prophets uh, and kind of weave them together that center around this idea of what is it that God wants from me? When, when, uh, when the Jews were trying to think, okay, what is it that God wants f f from me? Um, where did they land with that? Um, and maybe a better question is, what is it that God requires of me? What is it that God demands of me? Um, <clears throat> and there's a question that I think that's there for us in 2019 that really says, does God have the right to require anything from me. Uh, because we're, we are like fiercely independent Americans, right? We have our rights, we know our rights, and nobody can tell us to do anything. We all have the ability to think for ourselves, to come to our own conclusions, all of that stuff. Management consultants tell us that there's three different kinds of authority. There's positional authority, 
relational authority, and expertise authority. Um, uh, uh, positional authority is like the CEO or your boss at work. They're the person that you have to listen to their authority because they're in charge. That they're the ones that can mandate it down. So a general can tell a colonel, can tell a sergeant, can tell a private what to do. That's positional authority. Got that? Um, relational authority is authority that comes, power that comes because people are connected with other people. Now, this might make sense at, at work. There, at work, there are people who are in charge, but then there are people who are in charge, right? Uh, there, there are people who have the positional authority, but then there are people that because they're connected to other people, because they have a relationship with those people, they know when somebody's hurting, when they're grieving, they've come alongside them, they've picked up the slack for them. And so they have relational uh, power because of those relationships they have. So when, it, when a, a task comes to the group at, at work, and, and everybody's talking about what to do, and the, and, um, and the boss says, I, this is what we're going to do. And everybody kind of looks around and says, what do you think? And when that one person talks, everybody says, that's what we need to do, because they have relational authority. Expertise authority or power is the person who has the most knowledge or the most skill in a particular area. So if, uh, if, a, company's, if a construction company is building a bridge, who has the power in, in, the, in the building of that bridge? It's not the, the CEO. It's not a VP. It's not a project manager. It's the engineer, right? Because everybody can say, this is what I want the bridge to look like. And the engineer will say, no, 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 no. For that bridge to survive, for that bridge to do what it's designed to do, it has to meet these specific specifications. Specific spec specifications. That was redundant, right? Um, uh, but that's expertise, power, and authority, right? Um, so uh, there's all kinds of different power. Um, so the question, if I go back to it, is does God have the right to demand anything from me? In that framework, let, let, let's just ask. God has positional authority, right? He is the God of the universe. He is sovereign. He's in charge of everything. So positional authority, God absolutely has the ability to say, this is what I require of you. But that feels kind of like slavery to us, doesn't it? it, it it's not very connected. Um, does God have expertise authority in our world? He, he absolutely does. He's the one who made us. He's the one who designed photosynthesis, right? He's the one who created every creature. He's the one who knows our DNA. He's the one um, who, who built us. God has expertise kind of authority. Though, but that kind of authority, when you think about God's requirements for us, it feels a little bit more like a lab technician, you know, some, a scientist working a long distance away. It's not really very compelling, I don't think. But the relational authority is the thing that God has that makes the impact when we talk about what is it that God wants from us. Because God has been in relationship with us, it changes everything. Um, that's what I want to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, take, take them out turn to Hosea. One of the minor prophets, the first of the minor prophets, Hosea chapter 1. Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom. So the ten tribes have split from the two tribes as the nation of Israel was divided. Hosea is a prophet in the northern ten tribes. He's the only prophet that we know of that that's really where his focus was. 
Um, and, and God says to him at the beginning of the, of the book, um, he raises him up to speak for him, and then he says he's, he's going to um, demonstrate something powerful. He's going to use him as an object lesson. So Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, so God raises Hosea up as a prophet, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For, an adulterous, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Anybody going, wait, 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 did I read that right? God says to Hosea, go and marry a, uh, a promiscuous woman. The ESV, if you were to look at the ESV translation, it says a wife of whoredom, okay? Um, the, the amplified version, which is, I, I think, the, the, gives the clearest picture, it says a wife of prostitution. God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute, to, to, to go take this woman and make her her wife, make her your wife, and have, and have kids with her. And Hosea does. Now, if you read down through the, through the rest of the chapter, one of the things that you'll discover that's even weirder is that this prostitute's name is Gomer. <laughs> Golly! For all you old people, you get that. Everybody under 30, you're going, what, what was that? Um, cultural reference. Hosea marries Gomer, and together they have three children. But even as they're married, Gomer doesn't stay faithful to Hosea. She begins to sleep around, so much so that the third child, if you read down through the first chapter, the third child's name is, um, is not, not my people. It, it's, it's likely that that third child was not Hosea's child. It was somebody else's. Um, it's a crazy kind of thing. God, God tells Hosea to do this so that he can show the nation of Israel how deep his love is. Um, that even when Israel wanders away, God is going to continue to love them. In, in chapter 3, um, Hosea and Gomer have been married. God's given a prophecy through, through Hosea. Um, and Gomer has wandered away. She's left the marriage. She's, she's returned to a life of adultery. In chapter 3, um, starts this way. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. Um, God, tells, God tells Hosea to go and buy her back, to essentially buy her back from, uh, from her pimp and to, and to reunite as marriage. He's trying to describe how deep his love is for the nation of Israel and he's doing it through his prophet, through Hosea. Now, if you go all the way down to Hosea chapter 11, um, God describes the love in a, in a, in a, in a very um, clear way. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that that's a prophecy about Jesus, right? That he would come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. 
They sacrificed to the Baals, to the idols. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. Do you see the picture of a dad teaching a, a, his son to walk? But they didn't realize it was I who healed them. When they were sick, I took care of them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like, I, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Do you see the picture of God's tender love for his people? Later in chapter 11, uh, Hosea says, that God, God speaks through Hosea and says, how can I give them up? I love them too deeply to let them go. And yet they keep rejecting me. Understand this, God's love for his people is hard to comprehend. God's love for his people, it's hard to comprehend. He has this intensely committed love. It's relentless. It's insistent. It's steadfast. It's enduring. It's not a love that's casual, that's whimsical. It doesn't vacillate. It doesn't go back and forth. It doesn't settle for something else. It's a a love that has clear expectations for the object of his love about them loving him back. Don't miss this. God is not a power-hungry, maniacal prison guard that's just waiting for us to step out of line so he can whack us and beat us and throw us into solitary confinement. He's consumed by a love that says, I will love you and do anything for you. But it's a love that needs to go both ways. You can't love me only when it's convenient. You can't love me until you think someone is going to give you a better offer. There's not going to be a better offer. No one will ever love us more than God. No no one can ever love us the way that God does. One of the men who's had a profound impact on my life was a a pastor that I served with for 12 years in Maryland. Um, Both he and his wife came from very dysfunctional, incredibly dysfunctional families. And, um, and, And they were trying to figure out through the grace of Jesus what love looked like and what a marriage looked like that last because there was no history of that in their in, um, in their families at all. I remember him telling me, I remember him saying this to, to his wife, but telling me that this was something that he said regularly to her. He would, he, would, he would say to her, you know what, there is no one who will ever love you more than I do. Over and over again, he would say, there is no one who will ever love you more than I do. So you can look wherever you want. You can look at work, you can look out in the community, you can look on TV, there is no one who will ever love you more than I do. That, it made a profound impact on me because I thought, you know what, that's, that's the picture of God's love for us. What's really cool about their story is they've now been married over 60 years, and their legacy, the legacy that they have left for their children is incredible. There's, there's I think, of f- either three or four generations now of families that are intact, that know and love God, and that, that, they're, that know and love each other. It's, it's been an incredible turnaround. There is no one who will ever love you more than God. No matter what Satan says, no matter what he whispers in your ear, there is no one or no thing that can love like God does. This, this whole idea of marrying a prostitute, 
of buying her back from her pimp, of loving her even when she's being promiscuous, it seems crazy, right? It seems like, I could never do that. That's not even fair to consider. That, that just seems stupid. And then we remember that we are Gomer, and God is Hosea. We go looking for love in all the wrong places, even in the midst of this crazy, insistent, pure love from God. We go chasing people. We go chasing things. We go chasing status instead. About 260 years ago, a 22-year-old young man wrote these words that we still sing occasionally. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We've got to get a hold of the fact that just like the nation of Israel chased the idols, man, we, we wander from God like Gomer wandered from Hosea. God, help us to change that. God has positional power to require anything he wants from us. He has expertise power as well. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But the compelling reason why we need to respond to anything he asks is because of his relational power. Because he has come and lived among us. Because he loves us so desperately. So that begs the question, right? What does God want from us? What does he require? Can't you hear Adam Lambert singing, What do you want from me? What do you want? Now, all you old people are going, Huh? What's that? What do you want from me? That's the question that's there. Here in the Minor Prophets is the answer to that very question. Turn to the book of Micah. It's the sixth book in the 12 Minor Prophets. And we're going to look at Micah chapter 6 to find the answer to that, to discover the answer to that question. What do you want from me question? Micah's uh, from a small town in the hills of Judea, uh, southwest of, of Jerusalem. He prophesied roughly at the same time as Isaiah, about 100 years before Jeremiah. Interestingly enough, if you're doing the 90-day challenge, this past week you read in Jeremiah a reference to Micah because at one point Jeremiah is ready to be killed and, and uh, they look back at one of Micah's prophecies and, they, and, and said, this is exactly what Micah prophesied about. And as a result, Jeremiah's life is spared. Um, this is, this is uh, part of Micah's prophecy, chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How am I going to worship God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The question that, that Micah was asking is, how do, I, how do I worship God? How do I relate? Is it through all these sacrifices? Is that what it's all about? Verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, O, o man, what's good? 
What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. For the nation of Israel, if they were to ask, what do you want from me? The answer was clear. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just if they asked. Micah said, this is what God requires of you. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. When, back at the beginning of the series, when we were reading through Leviticus and Numbers, Chris, uh, in his message, talked about the law that was given, that it was given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific reason, to set the stage ultimately for us to be able to understand the sacrifice of Jesus for us. What, what we find in the, in the prophets is written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific reason, and it's to prepare our hearts for that Messiah, for that Savior that's ultimately going to come and redeem the world. So what we read in Micah 6 is not a checkoff list. It's not a, oh, if I do these things, if I act justly, if I love mercy, if I walk humbly with God, that, that that's my checkoff list and then I'm good with God. It's my golden ticket to get in heaven. It's not that at all. But it is a compass that, that, that shows us the path for how we relate to God and what it looks like to live as a part of his people. God has shown you what's good. What's, what does the Lord want? What's the Lord require? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I want to take uh, the next few minutes to just talk about that, to try and unpack it a little bit. Act justly means to, to do what's right. To do justice means to treat people fairly. Understand that justice is getting what we deserve, whether that's in, in a penalty form or standing up for somebody who, um, who's hurt, uh, who, who's, uh, who's experiencing injustice. Justice is getting what we deserve. I, I don't know about you, but if you've been, if you've been doing the 90-day um, read-through, one of the things that has struck me is that God, over and over again, through the, through, um, the judges, through Psalms, and through the prophets now, God identifies with the people who are the lowest on the ladder in the, in the world's view. God doesn't connect with the rich and powerful and the famous. God aligns himself with the people who are oppressed, to the widows, to the orphans, to the fatherless, to the, to the foreigners, to the immigrants that live in and among the Jewish people. God says, that's where my heart is. It's with the people who are on the bottom. God made provision through his people to take care of widows and orphans. God told his people over and over again, stand up for the foreigners, speak for them. Don't let them be abused by the rest of culture. God said that he would be the father to the fatherless. God told the Jews not to take advantage of each other economically. I don't, I don't know if you remember reading that. God said, don't even charge interest to the people that you loan money to that are, that are uh, in your people. God designed a legal system that was fair for everyone. God, uh, again, as, as you've been reading, you've heard God say, I hate bribery. What's so bad about bribery besides that it's cheating the system? It's this. Who can't afford to pay the bribes to get stuff accomplished? It's the poor, right? The oppressed. They don't have the ability to do that. 
God says, stand up for the, for, against injustice. What, what, how, do you, how do you make sense of justice? What's, what, what, what's that look like? Um, let me just give you three parts to justice. One is equal treatment. That, that there is, in Scripture, this, this call to social and racial equity that's there. Leviticus 24 talks about that. That, that um, the concept that's a part of our culture that says everyone is created equal, that's directly from God. That there is this sense of equal treatment that should exist in our culture. Another part of justice is that, that we would speak up, that God's people would speak up for people who are in vulnerable p- populations, widows, orphans, um, oppressed, and, and that, that we would stand with them. Proverbs 31 talks about that. Um, that. That we wouldn't just do charity for people who are oppressed, but that we would be their advocates and stand up against injustice that's inflicted against them. The third part of justice that I think that, that's there for us when we talk about doing justice is, is a spirit of generosity that we recognize that we have so much and that we have the ability to share that with others in the sense of justice. You know, you may think, <clears throat> you, um, understand, understand this, God and God alone has allowed us to be placed in this time and place. None of us had any control of whether we would be born in the 20th century or the 21st century or the 16th century. None of us had any control over whether we'd be born in the United States of America or whether we'd be born in a third world country. We need to stand with um, and against injustice. Uh, understand that in our culture, there is this spirit of, um, of uh, there, there's a political power and standing against injustice that's right now. Did you ever wonder where that came from? It's not from a political party, right? It's not aligned with a political party. Think back historically. In the Roman world, in the Greek world, the poor and the oppressed were trampled on. No one spoke up for them. They, they were disposable parts of society. In the Middle Ages, in Europe, the people who were poor, the serfs, that kind of stuff, no one spoke up for them. Even in our country, in our country, uh, you know, first hundred years or whatever, when slavery was, was so prevalent in the South, the, the, the slaves were viewed as disposable parts of our society. This, this sense of the need for, for justice, for social justice in our world, it comes from the heart of God, not from any place else. That's why Micah says, act justly. Let that be a part of your life. Um, and let that be a response to God's great love for us. Tim Keller said, any religion or secular morality who tries to motivate people to do justice through duty or self-interest will fail. You'll end up burning out. You'll end up being frustrated unless it's a response to a God who loves you tremendously. What will allow you to take up the cause of justice for the rest of your life? It's understanding that God's love is relentless for you, just like Hosea's love for Gomer, and that he loves those people who are being treated unjustly 
just as much as he loves you. Micah says, do justice, act justly. In the words of the famous theologian, there is no try, only do. Do justice. What's it mean to love mercy? If justice is getting what we deserve, mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's, it's when we don't get what we deserve. Um, and it's interesting to me that Micah says, love mercy. He doesn't just say, be merciful. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, well obtained mercy. Micah doesn't say, just be merciful. He says, love mercy. Love it when mercy is extended to people who have wronged you. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I, I look around at, at our culture and I want justice. When somebody commits a crime, I want them to be punished, right? Somebody, somebody does something bad, they need, to, they need to be put away or they need to feel that sense. Unless it's me, right? Unless, it, unless I'm the one who makes the mistake. God says, this is what I require for you to love mercy to love this sense of generosity that, that God gives as he demonstrates his nature and gives it to other people. Um, Dr. Wes Roberts, the pastor of People's Baptist Church in Boston, said this, justice by itself can be cold, severe, and unresponsive to human needs. Justice needs mercy to be truly humane. Act justly. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. What's it mean to walk humbly with God? It, I think it means to recognize our relationship with God, to recognize who God is, and to walk with that at the front of our mind day in and day out. I think that that's why it's so important to be reading Scripture. Because as you read Scripture, as, you, as the Scripture gets in your head and your heart, it changes the way that you see the world. And it allows you to walk humbly with God. When we walk humbly with God, we recognize that nothing we have is, is, of our, is of our own making. Not our intellect, not our work ethic, not any of our material goods. Everything we have is given to us as a gift from God. Walk humbly with your God. Humility is, uh, is rightly recognizing our place in the world and in, his, and in history. You know what, my life, my life, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, whatever that is, is a blip in history. One guy. It is not all about me. Life is not all about me. Life is not all about you. History is God's story. And we have a piece in that, but it's not about us. Walk humbly with our God. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not, it's not saying, oh, I'm a terrible person. It's, it's not thinking about yourself. It's thinking about others. Walk humbly with your God. Know that he loves us, that we don't deserve that love. Chuck Smith said, the man who is proud is a man who has never had a true encounter with God. I, I love that. How do you think Gomer felt being married to Hosea? She was a prostitute. She didn't deserve to be married, let alone to be married to a preacher, to someone that God was using to call Israel back to himself. When we walk humbly with God, we walk with grace. Um, we get what we don't deserve. 
If justice is getting what we deserve, if mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's the blessing that comes. Walk humbly with your God. Uh, One of the religious leaders came up to Jesus and asked him which command was the most important of all the Jewish laws. Jesus responded and said, um, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the first commandment. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. I think that loving God, there's that, there's that Micah 6 question, what does God require of you? Love God, love people. I think loving God means that we do justice, that we stand with and for the powerless, that we stand against corruption in our world. I think loving others means that we love mercy. And I think that when we walk humbly with God, we realize that our lives are all about Jesus, that they're not about us, that it's his story and not ours. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. So go and make disciples. All authority, positional authority, expertise authority, relational authority, all authority has been given to me. Go make disciples. What's it, what's it take to to respond to that, it takes courage. Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for, for these books that we'll read this week. For the reminders of who you are, of, of your character, of what you call us to do, who you call us to be. God, it, it really is my prayer that as a church, that we would be known as a place that does justice, that acts justly, that loves mercy, and that walks humbly with God. God, do your work in us that that may be so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, We're going to stand. The the band's going to play a song they played right before the message. Let those words soak in. Be courageous as you serve him today. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's sing.